Beginning at verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 10 together. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Gracious God, we ask this morning that you would give us humble, teachable, obedient hearts, that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series so far in the gospel according to Matthew, I think a major emphasis in the first four chapters leading up to this first major teaching block in Matthew's gospel has been that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Matthew has gone to great lengths to identify the incarnate God in Jesus with those people that he came to save. Some of the ways we've seen that he has done that go back to the very opening verses of chapter 1, where he emphasized in the genealogy a long line of sinners and Gentiles in the genealogy of Jesus. Sending the message right up front, Jesus is coming to save sinners and Gentiles. And then moving into the remaining chapters leading up to chapter 5, we've seen him identified by Matthew with Israel. He is the true Israel. He is the Israel that satisfies the demands of God's righteousness in a way that Israel never could. And one of the ways Matthew's demonstrating that is by showing how Jesus constantly identified with Jesus by going where they went. Israel goes to Egypt. Jesus goes to Egypt. Israel shelters from the threat of death. Jesus shelters from the threat of death. Israel's delivered from Egypt. Jesus is delivered from Egypt. Israel passes through the waters. Jesus passes through the waters. Israel spends a time of 40 years in the wilderness and testing. Jesus spends a time of 40 days in the wilderness and testing. All of that very intentional to show Jesus identifying with those whom he came to save. So now we have sinners, Gentiles, Jews. You're getting the picture. This is the fulfillment of those promises going all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam and Eve. That God is going to enter into this world and through the course of time, he is going to save sinful humanity from every nation, tribe, tongue. That's every one of us in this room today fall in that category. And as he identifies with these sinners in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, we come to chapter 5, this first major teaching block. And just as Israel went to Mount Sinai after coming 
out of Egypt. Jesus goes to a mountain. He is presented by Matthew as the great new Moses. And just as Moses handed down the law, this is what kingdom life looks like. Jesus now goes to the mountaintop, hands down to his disciples. And when I say his disciples, this includes you and me, if you're a follower of Christ. This is what kingdom life looks like. That, that's what the Beatitudes are about. That's what the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount is about. This is what kingdom life looks like. And he begins with these Beatitudes. And I think the implicit invitation here when he raises each of these Beatitudes is an invitation to evaluate ourselves in the light of them. I think that's an excellent exercise to go through these Beatitudes and just ask, do I get these? Do I feel these? Do I resonate with these? Not perfectly, of course, but do I see these attitudes in my life because they are an evidence of someone who has been born again by the Holy Spirit as a son or daughter of God through Jesus Christ. And I think particularly in preparation for the Lord's Supper next Sunday, we listed these in the bulletin. I think this is a great tool for self-examination. It's good to ponder the question, am I poor in spirit? It's good to ponder the question, do I mourn my sins? It's good to ponder the question, am I meek, gentle towards God, towards others? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's good for all of us to to constantly weigh our souls against these standards, realize our shortcomings, yes, and confess them and be humbled in the process. That Jesus is saying, look, this is unlike anything the world will tell you. But this is the true road to blessedness, to happiness, to sanctification, to spiritual maturity, to Christ-likeness. I, I think this is getting to the essence of practical Christianity. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? That's the portrait that he's painting in the Beatitudes. And when you ask the question, what is Jesus primarily concerned about here? I think you have to answer the question clearly. He's concerned about the condition of your heart. The emphasis throughout, especially these Beatitudes, the emphasis is on attitude, not action. Attitude. I have a lot to say as you get into the Sermon on the Mount, Lord willing, we'll see this in the upcoming weeks about rules. Do this, don't do that. The parameters, lists of do's and don'ts, commandments. But friends, I want to tell you, if you read this sermon essentially, essentially as a, a rule-keeping message, if you read this sermon, especially these Beatitudes, as particularly a legal message, a list of rules for keeping, a list of do's and don'ts, you're going to miss the point entirely. Because I can assure you what Jesus is not doing here. He is not saying, here is a list of things to do in order to enter the kingdom, in order to obtain the kingdom, in order to remain in the kingdom. 
check this list. Do these things. That's not the message being sent here. Jesus' main goal, particularly in these Beatitudes, is to describe kingdom life. To describe the inner workings, the heart, the attitude, the inner person that is a follower of Christ, more so than just a list of do's and don'ts. And, and I see that in Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels. Jesus is constantly, and I think this is the main point I want to get across this morning, Jesus is constantly just obliterating legalism, obliterating moralism. He has the hardest words. You think about just the general life and ministry of Jesus. The hardest words of Jesus are always reserved for the Pharisees, not the tax collectors, not the prostitutes, not the drunkards. He's got words for them too. But the hard words, the biting words, the ones that you can see, humanly speaking, if I may say this, that really get under Jesus' skin are the legalists, the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the religious elite. It's because they, they knew so much and they were so theologically trained but they also pretended so much. So they have it all just so put together on the outside, but on the inside, they're just as empty as can be. That is legalism. And I think the message of Jesus, the message of the Bible, the message of the New Testament is that you cannot reduce the gospel to external moral improvements. You just can't. It's a, it's a constant temptation in fact, somewhat anecdotally, you know, I, I do get as a pastor to hear a lot of Christian testimonies, which is really one of the highlights of what I do. I love hearing testimonies about how the Lord has worked in the lives of people. And I think probably the number one testimony that I hear is some version of I grew up in a church in the South and my primary exposure to Christianity was as a list of do's and don'ts, a moralistic therapy. And that is not what Jesus is offering here. You don't become a Christian by doing so-and-so. You don't remain a Christian by doing so-and-so. Being a Christian is a matter of God's undeserved grace supernaturally transforming a heart and being a disciple or disciple and follower of Christ is primarily a matter of the heart. What's going on on the inside? Strip away all the externals. They, you know, externals have their place here and there. That's fine. But if you're not changed from the inside, you're missing the whole point. And, and I think the, the goal of the gospel, the goal of Scripture, is to produce a certain kind of person who's changed from the inside out. Not just a person who externally obeys and has an exhaustive list of rules for every single situation in life. That's the emphasis right at the start. We've already seen that. We saw that last week, looking at the first four Beatitudes. It's crystal clear that being a Christian is not a matter of 
doing certain things. It's a relationship to God. What does it look like? Well, we'll go back to verse 3. If, if you're in relationship to God, it's the man or woman who is cognizant of their spiritual poverty. It's the man or woman, verse 4, who mourns their sin and spiritual poverty. It's the man or woman who, because of their spiritual poverty and because they mourn their spiritual poverty, they have a certain humility and gentleness, a meekness about them in the way that they uh, approach God, relate to God, and the way that they uh, relate to other people. It's the man or woman, verse 6, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, who longs, who, who, who looks at themselves and sees, I'm not the person that I need to be, want to be, can be, and I can't do it. I need someone else. I need the righteousness of Christ to forgive me, to be imputed to me, and that's my only hope in this life. That is not a list of to-dos. That is not legalism. That's the exact opposite of that. That's what I want to show you this morning. And, and I want to slow our pace just a little bit. We looked at the first four last week. Today, I really just want to focus on verse 7. And I think now, as a consequence of the being poor in spirit, spiritual poverty, mourning your, your sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, here are the things that will flow from that. And, and we've made the point, these eight Beatitudes, they're, they're not a la carte. They're not, you pick one or two or three that you like and leave the rest. It, it's, a, it's a complete portrait. They, they all stand or fall together. They all flow together. So if you're spiritually impoverished, you get that. You mourn your sin, you get that. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you get that. Another characteristic of those who have been born again into the kingdom of God, they are going to show mercy. What is mercy? Blessed are the merciful, he says in verse 7, So for they shall receive mercy. Well, I think a helpful way to understand mercy is to look at a few examples of what it is and what it is not. And, and there's plenty in Scripture. But I want, to, I want to just fast forward to one. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. You have an example of what mercy looks like and its opposite. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. Jesus, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who does this guy think he is? Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, there it is, and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy, not Sacrifice Here, the opposite of mercy, and I think this helps flesh out what he's talking about. The opposite of mercy in this particular example is sacrifice. He's quoting from the prophet Hosea, Hosea 6.6. 6, and if you go back and look at that in context, Hosea 
describes the love of people for God like grass that's wet with dew. And if you're familiar with grass that's wet with dew, it's wet for a brief time in the morning, then it dries up, it's gone. And he says, your love is like that. Your love is like the dew of the grass that's here today and gone in an hour. And the reason it's gone is because of empty sacrifices. That's the point. The point is, the opposite of mercy is empty sacrifices, external obedience. Jesus wants your heart And he's more concerned with your heart than he is with external religious duties. He wants us to have feelings of affection. He wants from the inner person an affection and a love for him, an affection and a love for other human beings created in his image. The Pharisees are looking at this in this example, and they see a problem of being contaminated. You're eating with sinners. You're eating with tax collectors. You're eating with sinners. And and here they are. Their lives are all about this mechanical implementation of external rules and regulations and do's and don'ts. And yet Jesus, in his typical fashion, all the rules and regulations and external mechanics aside, he just looks at these poor people. And when he looks at the tax collector and when he looks at the sinner, his heart melts for them. He sees someone who is sick and they need a doctor. And Jesus has the medicine. Jesus has the cure. And out of compassion, out of mercy, souls are about to be healed And here's Jesus, the great physician, bringing the cure to souls that need to be healed. That's mercy. And here are these Pharisees, the religious elite, and they're in such bondage to legalism. They're in such bondage to empty sacrifices. They're in such bondage to to religious trivia, they can't get past the list of do's and don'ts to get to the heart of the matter. It's a night and day contrast. Let me show you another one. Let me give you another example. If you you flip forward to chapter 23. This is a a powerful illustration. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 23. Here he is again. Now, there's so many examples of this. Lord willing, we'll see them as we continue through Matthew's gospel. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters, the deeper matters, the more important matters, the first order matters of the law. What are they? Justice. And here it is again and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done. The smaller things, the trivial things, the external things, yes, in their place. But don't do them at the expense without neglecting the others, the weightier things. You blind guides, 
And here's a powerful picture, powerful metaphor. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What's the opposite of mercy? It's straining out gnats. Straining out gnats. Religious trivia, religious legalism. Or we might say today, missing the forest for the trees. Are you familiar with that expression? I think that, that sums it up. That, I think that is at the heart of Jesus' concern, particularly when it comes to the beatitude of showing mercy. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the sick person because you're straining little gnats. I, I can't even imagine what that looks like to strain gnats. It sounds awful. And here they are obsessed with straining gnats. And they're swallowing whole camels. What a powerful image. Religious activity that just consumes their heart and their being to the point that they don't even see people that need Jesus. They don't even see the sick that needs a physician. They're just consumed with religious trivia. And Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't, don't have a heart that is consumed with empty sacrifices and legalism. Have a heart that is taken up with the weightier matters like showing mercy to other people. Much more important. Much more important. Let me give you one more. Turn, turn with me to the uh, Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. Just one more Sharp picture. Everybody's familiar with this one, but it is the classic. A sharp picture of mercy and its opposite. So, so the opposite is empty sacrifices. The opposite is legalism. Luke chapter 10. A lawyer comes to Jesus. It's not a joke. This, is, this really happened. The lawyer comes to Jesus, verse 25, which Luke 10. Lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. A lawyer asked Jesus, how should a person act who expects to receive mercy on judgment day? And Jesus affirms, you've answered correctly. In, in other words, show mercy. Blessed are the merciful. If you show mercy, if you love the Lord and you love other people, you will be shown mercy because you've been shown mercy. Who do you show mercy to? What does this look like? Remember the lawyer's trying to catch him here. He's, he's, he's trying to set a little trap. Verse 28, the lawyer said to him, uh, verse uh, 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Aha! Who's my neighbor then, Jesus? And Jesus replied, this is what it looks like. This is what mercy looks like. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, 
He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The priest, we might say, is a pastor. A Levite, we might say, is a music minister. So the pastor comes by, sees this guy beaten. He's a Samaritan, different race, different culture, different religion. Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. The pastor passes on by. Music minister, Levite, comes by, sees a guy beaten on the side of the road. Different race, different religion, different culture. We don't talk to Samaritans. Passes on by. Likewise, a Levite came to the place and saw him. Passed by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, mercy. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which one showed mercy? And he said, the one who showed him mercy, the Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What does mercy look like? It sees distress in a fellow human being made in the image of God. It responds with an inward heart of compassion and mercy. It's moved. It seeks to help with practical, sympathetic, costly help in this case. And here's the real kicker. It is extended beyond religion and race. It is extended beyond to those people that normally we wouldn't want to have anything to do with. That's the unnatural part. That's the counterintuitive part. That's the part that doesn't come from us. It comes from a supernatural remake of a heart. That's mercy. It's an eye for distress. It's a heart of pity. It's an effort to help even in spite of enmity. That is mercy. And Jesus says, show mercy like the Samaritan, not like the priest, not like the Levite. It's so interesting here. And this is just another beautiful example of how Jesus just can grip with the simplest of illustrations. It is so interesting that he says, don't be like the pastor. (laughs) Don't be like the music minister. Why, Why are they the bad guys in the story? That's not exactly what you would expect, but boy, does it make sense. Because Jesus is well aware, you're well aware, if we're honest, we're all well aware that far too many people in the church get caught up with the external mechanics, pastors included, at the expense of a heart of compassion. And Jesus takes that tendency, that 
misaligning of priorities turns it on its head and says the heart of compassion is the heart of the matter. Don't miss the forest for the trees. It's one of the weightier matters of life, mercy is. And Jesus is well aware, if we're honest, we're well aware, it is always in danger of being neglected because of our preoccupation with religious trifles, legalism, and religious trivia. But let me just say this in closing, and, and this is where we want to be very careful. Mercy is not a condition of God's favor. You don't earn God's favor by showing mercy. Think about this. Earned mercy is a self-contradiction. Mercy, by definition, is grace, undeserved grace. You don't earn undeserved grace. You don't earn God's favor through mercy. If it's earned, it's not mercy. What Jesus' point is, is if you have received mercy, if you have received God's undeserved grace, you're going to show God's undeserved grace to others. You are never more like God than when you show mercy to someone that every fiber in your being would tell you not to show mercy toward under any other set of circumstances. Mercy doesn't earn God's grace. Mercy reflects God's grace. And it grows up like a fruit and a heart that is broken and a heart that is meek and a, and a heart that is hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God. And when you show that kind of mercy and God sees that kind of mercy and it's evidence of his mercy in your life, he welcomes you into his eternal kingdom. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the undeserved mercy that you have shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection. And Father, we pray that that undeserved mercy would flow freely through us as we relate to those who are created in your image in this world, even this very week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.